Let's open our Bibles, our New Testaments, to the Gospel of John in the 14th chapter. John chapter 14. John has a lot of chapters at the end of this Gospel that are about the last few hours of Jesus' life. Starting in chapter 13, it's just the last few hours of his life, the Last Supper. And they're still sitting at the table. They're going to end that in the last verse of this chapter. Then they'll be on the road walking back to Bethany. But here we have his final words to his trusted 11. Those that would be apostles in the New Testament church. This is what he said to them when he had a few hours left with his choice men. And it is at that 15th verse in this chapter that we have a division in the sense that from that point forward through chapters 14, 15, and 16, it is about the Holy Spirit of God. He hasn't been mentioned much before. There was a prophecy and promise of him given to the woman of Samaria in chapter 4 about water that Jesus could give her that was unlike the water in Jacob's well. And there was a prophecy and promise made in John chapter 7 that out of a thirsty man's belly could flow rivers of living water. But these are details, and lots of details, for two and a half chapters of detail about the Holy Spirit. And it was right at verse 15 that we crossed the divide into some wonderful verses. And I hope that you will cherish these verses and know where the divide is and be able to see that in the second half of chapter 14 and all of 15 and 16, we have wonderful things about God with us by his spirit. Jesus had a name, Emmanuel, God with us. That was God with us in a body. We have God with us by himself. He is a spirit, and as that spirit, he's able to be inside us. And so we want to thank the Lord for that and see the divide and appreciate these verses. We have already covered verses 15 through 18, though I like to look at these verses and say they're impossible to cover. They're too great. I will pray the Father. Jesus praying for us? You know, every religion wants a priest. They're so pitiful. They want a priest to pray for them. And I, refer, I told you that I get lots of emails asking us or me to pray for them. Jesus prays for his own. Right. And that's just incredibly wonderful. Amen. These are the 11. The 11 were pretty decent prayers. They were apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, and so on and so forth. We want to come to verse 19, lest I preach verses 15 through 18 again though I wouldn't mind myself. They're wonderful, wonderful words. Let me read it, verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. At that day, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments... And keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. 
Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Amen and amen. amen. Wonderful words of our Lord. Let's get right into them. Remember, we're in the last couple of hours, and he says, yet a little while, because there's only a couple of hours, and he's going to be taken away by death and burial for three days and three nights. He'll then come back for 40 days, manifesting himself to a select chosen group, slightly over 500 in total. Then he'll ascend into heaven, where he'll be gone for at least 2,000 years, and he'll come back again to receive them unto himself. And that is all mentioned in this passage, because he says in verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. So there's various statements here of comfort to the apostles. Comforts of momentary departure while he's in the grave. Comforts of 2,000-year departure till he comes again. Because, but he's going to be gone then to prepare them a place in heaven. But let's look at these words. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. Jesus was only hours from crucifixion, after which the world would not see him again. After his resurrection, he went into Galilee to meet the eleven there. He had told them in advance, I'm going to go before you into Galilee. I'll beat you there. That was easy for our Lord, but he said it that way. I'll go before you into Galilee. He appeared to them in Jerusalem. Then he appeared to them in Galilee, their home country. And he showed himself to some of their friends, about 500 brethren, even at one time. And then they came back to Bethany, where he ascended up into heaven. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. There is no record of him appearing to any, but a few brethren, a little over 500. We're told about the 500 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul says the order of the apostles and how they saw Jesus, and that he was like an apostle born out of proper timing, and he was the last one to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is telling them, yet a little while, in a couple of hours, the world's not going to see me again. But ye see me. We'll get to that in a moment. Jesus did not appear after his resurrection to the world, but to a few. Let me read to you the words, the words in Acts chapter 10 of how Peter explained this to Cornelius and those that were gathered there with him. We are witnesses, Peter and the apostles, we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. Not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, Amen. even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. Now that's personal, when you eat and drink with a dead man after he has raised, been raised from the dead. Amen. And so we have the Lord telling us about that. 
Now, when it says, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more, Jesus had appeared to the world. He had traveled around and had traveled openly. He had gone to some of their greatest feasts and celebrations so that thousands got to see him. That was no further. That was not going to happen any further. After his trial and the few that were there, he wouldn't appear again to men except to those brethren before chosen. And so he's just telling them, I'm about to leave. As I told you in chapter 13 and verse 33, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. He had told the Jews, I'm going to where you can't go, and he told the apostles, I'm going to where you can't go. Now, we all go there at the point of death. We all get to be with the Lord when we die. But the apostles weren't going to be with him. And these words are important because the apostles were disturbed the most by the fact that Jesus was going to leave them personally. Jesus was going to leave them physically. Jesus was going to leave them bodily. They had enjoyed being able to put their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, their hands on him, handle him, shake him, hug him, sit next to him, lie next to him when they were at supper, because these are the words that I just read to you a few minutes ago from 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which we have seen, we have heard, we've looked upon, we've seen with our eyes we've, and our hands have handled. But he said he was leaving. And they understood enough that he was going to die and leave them. And so he's comforting them that yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But let me, before we leave those words, let me point out that the world will definitely see the Lord Jesus Christ again. And they are not going to like the sight. The word of God says, every eye shall see him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. They'll all see him. All men shall see Jesus Christ as judge very soon. They shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of their lives. He will separate the righteous from the wicked. He'll put the righteous on his right hand, the wicked on his left hand. He'll tell those on his right hand to enjoy the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. He'll tell those on his left hand, enter into, depart from me, into cursed, he cursed into fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Right. That's coming. So we understand that when Jesus said, yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, it's not going to see him physically anymore, because he's going to ascend into heaven. We understand that. But ye see me, it says in verse 19. But ye see me, amen. Though the world would not see Jesus again, the apostles would and did see him again. Don't let the present tense bother you very much when it says, but ye see me, because notice how the first clause is worded. Yet a little while, and the world shall see me no more. Is that, how, is that how it is worded? Yet a little while, and the world shall see me no more? Does it use the future tense? No, it uses the present tense, because you're supposed to understand it by the words, yet a little while. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me, present tense, no more. But ye see me, and ye shall see me. You should understand that by yet a little while. Don't let that bother you. I just want you to understand every clause that we're going through here. The eleven saw Jesus then, right then, in the upper room with him, and they would see him again after 72 hours in the grave. Jesus visited with them in multiple places a number of times after his resurrection. It was a tremendous event for them to see him again. Notice in chapter 20 of this same gospel, John chapter 20 and verse 20, Jesus, the 
the first day of the week at evening when the doors were shut because the disciples were scared, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. That's John 20 and verse 19. Now verse 20. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Now look what it says. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. They were glad when they saw the Lord because they had seen him die. They had seen that he was buried. They had confirmation that he was buried. His tomb was sealed by the Roman government. And now they saw him alive. They were glad. And so yet a little while, the world's not going to see me anymore, but you're going to see me, and you'll be glad. All implied in the words, don't worry, I'm not leaving you forever. You're going to see me again. And and they did. They would also see him by faith, by the Spirit at Pentecost, at their death when they would be absent from the body and present with the Lord, and in glorified bodies to come. Our Jesus Christ has not left us. He's not left us. He's with us spiritually right now. By faith we can see him in the heavens because the Bible tells us and faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It tells us what he looks like. It tells us where he is. It tells us he's the right hand of God. It tells us he's coming again. And we believe those things by faith so we see with the eye of faith. As soon as we die, the spirit is absent from the body. That's what death is. The spirit leaves the body. At the moment of death, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Amen. Fastest space travel you can imagine. Do you, know, do you know how long a Star Wars movie would be if they had travel as fast as the spirit travels at death? You couldn't see it. They'd start it, end it, and you wouldn't have seen anything. Because it'd be over. Because travel's instantaneous from earth to heaven by our spirits. They'd see him that way. There would be very little interruption of their relationship with Jesus Christ by all of these aspects put together. But the one he's focusing on right now is, they're not going to see me bodily anymore, but you're going to see me bodily. And for 40 days and 40 nights, we'll do some things together. I'll eat and drink with you. I'll help you fish. I'll help you fish very well and effectively. I'll cook some fish for you. I'll eat it in front of you. I'll let you stick your fingers in my hands if you want to. We're going to have a great time for a few days. Because then I'm going to send you out to preach that you saw me after I rose from the dead. And don't worry, so that no one will think that you're a nutcase, I'll appear to about 500 of your buddies at once up there in Galilee so that they will be able to confirm that you have not lost your mind. It is. And that's what was coming for them. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. Jesus is called, in 1 John chapter 1 that I read to you, the word of life. Because he has life in himself. He gives life. He can lay down his life. These are all Bible verses. And he can take up his life again. That is how much he has life. Because I live. Present tense. I have life within me. I dispense life, I restrain life. We learned all that in John chapter 5. As the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Back there in John chapter 5. Because I live. Did we sing a song last Sunday? Because he lives? You know that song? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because I live, ye shall live also. 
Because I have life in me and the power to lay my life down and to raise it up again, I'm going to rise from the dead and you'll see me and my power to raise myself from the dead. Now stop with me for a moment. Is it powerful to raise someone else from the dead? Does that take some power? Yes. Yes. To raise someone else from the dead, you've got to be able to give and bestow life. But what about when you're dead? Right. Amen. About raising yourself. Yeah. Is that a lot of life power? Amen. When you're dead and you're able to raise yourself back to life? Amen. Because I live, ye shall live also. If I can raise myself from the dead, raising you apostles from the dead won't be any difficulty at all. Amen. Do you all believe that? Amen. Do you know why I ask that question? I don't ask very many questions like that, but sometimes I do. Because Jesus in John chapter 11 said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Because that's what changes our lives. It's the hope of the resurrection. Because I live, ye shall live also. Jesus rose from the dead, and the apostles would be raised from the dead like him. He laid his life down. It's in chapter 10, verse 18. He took his life up again. He lives forever. He raises his right hand to heaven and swears, I live forever. Amen. No man can do that in the universe but the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. God does that in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Jesus does that in Revelation 1.18. I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. Amen. Who said amen? For Jesus. He did, yes. Jesus said amen to his own statement. I am alive forevermore. Amen. Because he is alive forevermore. He's got life like no other. And so the poor apostles, I think Jesus is going to die. And he's going to leave us. He is telling them in every possible way, let not your heart be troubled. Isn't that how he started this chapter? Let not your heart be troubled. In verse 27, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. I'm going to die, but I am life. And I will raise myself up from the dead. And ye shall live because I live. I have the power of life and death. Because I live, ye shall live also. There's, There's a number of senses and layers and levels of this statement, because I live, that we should not overlook. Look at Colossians chapter 3. There's many, but let's go to this one that I go to often, because I want you to appreciate it as Baptists. If you're a Baptist, then you were buried in water. If you're a Baptist, then you were raised back up out of water, to show that you believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so in Colossians chapter 3, you know, some of my favorite pictures of immersion have come out of Iraq and Afghanistan where they've dug trenches, the soldiers there, deep enough for an immersion. You know, if you're a Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, or Catholic, all you got to do is take your canteen or a squirt gun and shake it in their face. But, you know, they know the Bible. And when you get over there, your religion's a little bit more serious than it is here. So they dig a hole to immerse in. 
you remember the pictures of the excavators that I've shown you? The monster excavators used by the military in which they fill the bucket full of water and use it as a baptistry? It's beautiful. That's what this verse is about. Colossians 3.1 If ye then be risen with Christ. Now Paul is writing people on earth. They were not yet risen from the dead out of a cemetery to be in heaven. How were they risen? They were risen in baptism. You say, Pastor, prove it to me that that's what he meant. Just go back a few verses to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Buried with him in baptism, risen with him in baptism. So back to Colossians 3.1. If ye then be baptized and are risen with Christ, you've shown that you believe in the resurrection, Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Or to love heavenly things, not earthly things. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. We're dead. Our real life is the Lord Jesus Christ representing us in heaven. Our real life is lost in Christ. Our real life is all in and through and by him. This physical life is a minor aspect of your existence. It's going to end, and then you will be given a glorified body in some future day to be in heaven forever. But you, eternal life never leaves you, and you'll always have it. We're, our, our lives are lost in Christ. It's, they're all in, through, by Him, and because of Him. For ye are dead. In some ways, we're dead to this world. We don't care about it. It is not our ambition. But heaven is our ambition. And your life is hid with Christ in God. There's that unity we're going to run into in John 14. Christ is in God. God is in Christ. We're in Christ. If we're in Christ and Christ is in God, we're in God. God's in us by his spirit. It just goes back and forth. Say it any way you want. Say it in all the ways you want. It's glorious, fantastic truth. When Christ, who is our life, because I live, ye shall live also. Present, future. You'll, you live in every way because of me and my present life. And the one that's coming after that of intercession for you. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Many other things could be said. We declare this connection of our lives to his life by being resurrected in baptism. Baptism is such an important thing, and most Baptists take it too lightly. But baptism's huge. You only get to do it once. You know, we had a brother in this pulpit last week that said he wished he wasn't baptized and wished he wasn't a church member here. So that he could... Were you offended? No. I hope you weren't offended for long. He said so that I could be baptized again. Right. And so that I could join this church again. Okay, we understand it and appreciate it. I fully understand the desire to be baptized again. Because when the Bible says it's the way that we can give God the answer of a good conscience, I wouldn't mind doing that a couple times a day. But it's once in a lifetime. The Lord chose it, the Lord's content with it. If the Lord's content with it, we better be content with it. Verse 20, At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Do you mind this kind of redundant phraseology i hope you love it at that day ye shall know that i am in my father and ye in me and i in you that is the unity that god and jesus christ have together and that we have with them 
It's just a way of describing unity at that day. We need, we need to make an interpretational choice. What is that day? It could be the day of his resurrection, for then they perceived much more about him. It could be the day of Pentecost, for then they had near perfect grasp of Christology by the presence of the Holy Spirit. It could be the day of the New Testament canon being completed. Then their knowledge would be perfect, 1 Corinthians 13. It could be the day of judgment, for then all things will be revealed as they truly are. So what do we do? We let context be our master. Jesus introduced this short two-verse lesson in light of his resurrection. So we choose his resurrection. 72 hours, 80 hours after this, he's going to rise from the dead. After his resurrection, the apostles were much more convinced of him. Look over a few pages to John chapter 20, where we've already been, and look at verse 28 with me, when doubting Thomas arrives on the scene. Jesus appeared to the ten, and he put out his hands and he said, See, look at the holes in my hands. Thomas wasn't there. So the apostles told Thomas, We saw the Lord. And Thomas said, Well, I ain't going to believe he's risen from the dead until I can stick my fingers in those holes. So the next time they were together, Jesus appeared and gave him his opportunity. And here's how he reacted. And this is how you would react if you're a child of God and you meet the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, though, though not glorified yet here. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. I told you a few weeks ago, this is, one of the strongest, this is the strongest statement made in the gospel accounts by an apostle about Jesus. My Lord and my God. He called Jesus my God. Now, what are we, what are we waiting for? Because Jesus said, at that day, you're going to know something. You're going to know some things you don't know very well right now. That, and let's go back to John and see it in verse 20. I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. You are going to see a connection between God the Father and me, and my connection with you that you haven't appreciated yet. And it came after the resurrection. It happened at Pentecost, sure. They had more understanding of Christology. They could have written a systematic theology with their eyes shut and with the wrong hand. They had, they had that knowledge. And sure, it was better when they died and were in heaven. And sure, it was better in the great day of judgment when they're going to understand. But they understood after the resurrection. Because the resurrection revealed a whole lot of things. I mean, it even revealed something to a Roman centurion that was standing there watching what took place. And when he saw this collection of events, truly, this man was the Son of God. At that day, after his resurrection, the apostles were much more convinced of him, like we just read of Thomas in chapter 20. They did not have the boldness and knowledge of Pentecost yet, but they knew a whole lot more. They had heard his prayer of John 17. They had heard his prayer of John 17 and of the intimate personal relationship between God and Jesus and how Jesus kept referring to that as we are one, as we are one, as we are one. Let these 11 you've given me be one with us and let those that believe on me through their word be one with us. That unity was expressed in the prayer of John chapter 17 And then they got to watch Jesus die with expressions like this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
What's he saying words like that for? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. This all happened on the cross. The apostles either saw it, John was there for sure, they heard about it, and it was confirmed to them by the witnesses of the women that were there. And so ye shall know that I am in my Father. They saw him entired, entirely revived with his miracle power, just like he had been before, by the Father. They saw the divine transaction at the cross, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. They saw all that. The sun went dark. There was an earthquake. The veil in the temple was torn. And so when it says, at that day, ye shall know, we take at that day to be the day of his resurrection because of verse 19. If that's the great day of judgment that is still in the future, that's of no comfort to apostles who had to go out and preach in the world. That wouldn't be of any comfort. By the way, I just want you to know that you'll understand I've been on a divine mission about 3,000 years from now. How would that comfort the apostles? But there was something that was going to happen in just a few hours that was going to comfort them. They were going to hear Jesus talking to God in, a, in chapter 17 in a prayer like they had never heard before, and then on the cross like they had never heard before, and then, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and then resurrection from the dead. They saw him entirely revived with his miracle power, just like he had had before death. They then saw the unity of father and son and their unity also before much better. The great day of judgment was so far as to provide no comfort to them at this time. Ye shall know that I am in my father. It is one thing to raise the dead. Elisha did it, but Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Jews knew and Bible believers know that life is the power of God to give or to take. And so the apostles saw that about Jesus. It is harder to raise yourself from the dead than to raise someone else from the dead. I know that right now you're not thinking too optimistically about being able to raise even someone else from the dead, and I agree with you. But if you could raise someone else from the dead, it's harder to raise yourself from the dead because when you're dead, you don't have the power of life in you. Unless you've got double the spirit of Elijah, then your Elisha and your bones can raise someone from the dead. Or you're the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the power of life in yourself. Because you have the power of God in yourself. Though God had forsaken Jesus, darkened sun, think about it, they saw life and light fully restored to the Lord Jesus Christ. That that relationship with God and Jesus was intact and gloriously powerful and beautiful. They heard his prayer to the Father. They saw the divine relationship clearly. His prayer was all about his unity with the Father. They saw the Father forsake him and heard his cries of separation from Psalm 22. They heard him commend his own spirit into the hands of his Father. It's found in Luke 23 and verse 46. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He laid down his life. He quit. He died. He chose to die. He let his spirit go. That's why he was dead before the Roman soldiers thought he should be dead. The thieves were still alive. So they broke their legs, which would mean they couldn't support themselves and they would die of suffocation. They, had to, they pierced the side of Jesus to fulfill scripture. 
They saw him raised from the dead by the God that tore the veil and shook the earth. All these things happened, and they knew there was a relationship between our Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee and God greater than we admitted to him while he was alive. So as soon as Thomas saw him, my Lord and my God. It was all, it was starting to come together. I don't want to say it was all coming together for them. It was starting to come together for them because they would progressively know more and more. Watching Jesus dispense and give the Holy Spirit to the apostles shows various levels of administration and ministry of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 20 has some interesting verses that we're going to get to. Jesus breathed on his apostles and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Well, they didn't get much, but they got some. And it sustained them until the day of Pentecost when they got a whole lot more. Then after the day of Pentecost, they had to preach like in the book of Ephesians that there's still a whole lot more to get. Pushing the Ephesian church to all the different ministrations of the Holy Spirit. Ye shall know that I am in my Father. And they saw that. That they were one in nature, but they were also one in purpose, power, principle, precept, and loved each other. That God loved his Son and darkened the Son to shut his glories in while his Son Jesus was dying on the cross. But then there was an earthquake, and the, temple of the, the veil of the temple was torn, and he raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus had commended his spirit into God's hands. They could see that unity between the Father and the Son. And ye in me, and I in you. Okay, pastor, what does that mean? And ye in me, you eleven, are going to show your unity with me and a very close relationship, and I in you. They knew their unity with Jesus was very intimate by him taking 40 days with them. Because now he had completed the great transaction of the cross and had commended his spirit into God's hand, what did it take for him to rise from the dead? He had to commend his spirit into God's hand because death is the absence of the spirit from the body. What did it take for him to revive and come back to life? What had to come back down? The spirit had to come back down and enter into his body again. Once you're there, you won't come back. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. The spirit of Jesus went to be with God. He told the thief on the cross, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Amen. That wasn't his body. That was his spirit. But for his body to come back to life, his spirit came back down into it. Why? To show himself alive to his chosen apostles for 40 days and 40 nights and to eat and drink with them. Did they know that they were closely tied to his mission? See, when it says I and you and you and me doesn't mean that they were divine. It doesn't mean that they were the word of God made flesh. Right. It means that they were cl closely united and intimately related in their commission from God to go and preach the gospel. Amen. You're going to see all that. He appeared to women and two going to Emmaus and spoke personally with them, explaining what had just taken place. Did he open the scriptures to the two on the road to Emmaus Amen. in such a way that their hearts burned within them? 
He appeared to the eleven in their hideaway to bless them and show them his wounds. He went to Galilee where they were all raised. He didn't just stay around Jerusalem. He went to their home country. They walked the same dusty roads that they had walked together as young men. He went by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, and watched them fish and called to them. And they came to shore. And he had fish baking there on coals. It was personal. They knew they were special because they saw by John 17 and Jesus on the cross that Jesus was special to God and he came back and spent 40 days down here to encourage those men. Here, it's me. It's me. Touch me. Go tell Peter. Oh, it was personal. It was gloriously wonderful. He went to Galilee. He helped them fish. He helped them eat of it. He showed himself alive to over 500 others to confirm that they weren't nuts when they started preaching. He allowed them to see himself ascended to heaven with an angelic explanation of it. Do you understand, for those 40 days, it was very personal, so they would know we have a commission from God in Christ to go do this. He ascended visibly up so that they could, he just didn't disappear. He ascended, it says, Acts chapter 1, Luke 24. He ascended up into the clouds, and they're standing there watching, and an angel's two men appeared, and explained to them, hey guys, sorry for my northern vernacular. Ye men of Galilee. Does that sound better? Ye men of Galilee. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. That, wow. And then he said, hang around in Jerusalem for just a few days until I give you some power from on high. And on the day of Pentecost, he gave them power. And so there was this progression of they would know that God was in Christ, Christ was in them, and they were in Christ with a divine mission of unity to go preach the gospel. Verse 21. If I had to pick two favorite verses over the last year about the gospel of John, what might they be? 21 and 23. Have I shared them with you enough times? And then our young man Jonah gets up here today and talks about thirsting and panting after God and after the living God. And these verses are all about that relationship. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, John 14, 21. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him. And will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which he hear is not mine, but the father's which sent me. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. The first part of verse 21. Before starting the explanation of this wonderful text, note that it is addressed generally in the third person. He, not ye. I like that. Do you know why? Because the he is me. 
and the she should be you. Because the he is a general pronoun for each of you. The previous verses had stated that Jesus was leaving them. The world seeth me no more. It's going to cause Judas consternation. If the world's not going to see him, how are we going to see him? He said, but ye see me, and and you will see me. But the world's not going to see me. How is that going to happen? Well, Jesus is going to explain that to us. This is the foundation for any relationship with God and obtaining his personal favors right here in the first part of this verse and verse 23 and verse 24. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. That should be one of the most obvious axioms of religion possible. If you love God, then you will keep God's commandments. It should be so obvious. This is the foundation for any relationship with God and obtaining his personal favors of an enhanced relationship and friendship with him. Jesus repeatedly stressed this for his apostles. I I don't know how to make this plainer. Jesus, when he's reduced to a few hours, when he has only his 11 that are going to be apostles, what does he say to them over and over? If ye love me, stop feeling sorry for yourselves that I'm going away. If ye love me, don't ask when I'm coming back. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Notice again, it's verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. It's verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Verse 23. If a man love me, he will keep my words. Verse 24, he that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And this is a law of heaven from God my Father. Now, if Jesus, with his chosen friends of three and a half years daily ministry, emphasized and stressed that point so much, how often should the ministers of Jesus Christ bring up the subject of obedience? Right. Once a year? I know you get tired of hearing me press obedience because your flesh hates it. And when you let it have enough room, it hates me for it. Just to comfort you a little bit, doesn't bother me a bit if you hate me. It's never moved me. I'm 61. I've never cared. I'm going to keep right on doing it because Jesus kept right on doing it. 15, 21, 23, 24, and yes, he's going to say in verse 31, I love the Father and keep his commandments. Notice what he says there. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. God's given me things to do, and I'm going to do them to show the world that I love them. What is my job description? Oh, that's not enough. Preach the word. Well, it's got, does it have John 14, 15 in the word? 14, 21, 14, 23, 14, 24, 14, 31. Is that part of the word? I'll let you get away with that three-word job description, but I want to continue that verse, 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word. Be instant. In season, out of season. 
Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Because Jesus did it. And that's what he wants his ministers to do. Because for God's glory, you need to love him. True love of God is your obedience of his sayings for your life. For you, now I do it for God's glory first. Second, I do it for you. For you to have the greatest fulfillment, satisfaction, power, peace, and pleasure in life. You need God in you, loving you, and manifesting himself personally to you. And it only comes one way, if you keep his commandments. So for God's benefit and for your benefit, I'm a broken record. I'm a broken record. There he goes again. There he goes again. Well, that's what, that's what you ought to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. So why doesn't someone stand up and shout against Jesus Christ? It's not being a bearer of bad news. Right. It's being a bearer of wonderful news. Amen. His commandments are not grievous. Right. They're for your profit and pleasure. Amen. You keep his commandments, you'll have the happiest life with nothing else. Amen. Even if you're not saved. Even if you're not saved and you keep his commandments, you'll have the happiest life possible on earth. But if you are saved and you keep his commandments, he is going to come to you and fill you with love, pleasure, joy, peace, and every other wonderful virtue, trait, and attribute of his that he's able to convey to a man or a woman, and you'll enjoy that. That's what he saved you for. You're his child. He wants you to have a loving, friendly relationship with him. Fellowship with him. And so it's all right here in these verses. He that hath my commandments, he's comforting his apostles. Apostles, men. I've only got a few hours. I've only got a few hours and I'm leaving to go to heaven. I'm going to send you another comforter. That's back in verse 16. It's the spirit of truth. The world can't receive him, but you're going to have me going to be with you forever. And if you'll keep my commandments, verse 15, if you'll keep my commandments, 21, if you'll keep my commandments, 23, my father and I are going to love you. We will come and manifest our love to you in a way that we do not manifest our love to others. I mean other Christians. We will come and abide with you. We will have an intimate, personal relationship of fellowship that will bring you fullness of joy. Do you remember 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 4? And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. And these things write we unto you that ye may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Because this was first addressed to the eleven. So God and Jesus Christ came and dwelt in the apostles by the Spirit. And the apostles weren't selfish about it. They knew that it was a third person, he, meaning you, meaning me. So they wrote in their epistles, all the apostles did, that we could all have that relationship with God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ like the apostles did if we'll keep his commandments and love him that way. We don't want to keep his commandments out of some duty, some dry duty of ritual. We want to keep his commandments because we love him. We want to keep his duties because we delight in him. But you can't delight in him and you can't love him without keeping his commandments because he's made them too plainly known to us. We know what he wants about every part of our lives. And when we do things his way, it pleases him and it profits us. And then he rewards us for profiting ourselves. 
When you live God's way by God's rules, you will have the most blessed, best life possible. And by having the most blessed, best life possible, God will then come and reward you with greater fellowship with him. Stupendously incredible. And it's John 14, 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. Does that mean for John 3.16 to apply to us, we have to love God first? This says that we love him, then he loves us. This is a different kind of love than the eternal love that God's had for his children. The Bible says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Well, you weren't around for that one. He's loved us before we had existence. He loved us before the foundation of the world because he wrote our names in the book of life. The Bible says our names are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. We weren't there in personal existence, but he already knew us and he'd already set his love upon us. Chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So, our eternal relationship with God in the eternal phase of salvation, our legal relationship with Christ at the cross, the vital relationship through the Holy Spirit regenerating us, that love of God that transcended our total depravity and time to reach even to us is not the love here. Because that love was already in place or we would never love God. But this is love the apostles. The apostles could up their love of Christ. Or why would he say this? They could up their love of Christ, and we can up our love of Christ. And how do we up our love of Christ? We make sure we're keeping his commandments. His commandments are easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. What a wonderful verse. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Men, you look so sad in the mouth. You're no longer smiling with me. We've had three and a half years together. I know that I'm leaving. I've told you that I'm leaving. But don't regret that. Don't resent that. If you love me, if you truly love me, keep my commandments. Keep my sayings. I've got some things for you to do. They had some things to do. They were more costly things than he has for us to do. Those apostles were treated like the filth and off-scouring of the earth by men. We're not treated like that. We have so little to do for him. But when we keep his commandments, we show that we love him. And he responds with love of a personal aspect of friendship and fellowship. This is not the saving love from eternity of God the Father. This is not the dying love of Christ on the cross. This is not the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. This is friendship and fellowship that your joy may be full. I will come to you and we will be one. I'll be in you. My Father will be in you. The both of us will manifest our love to you. That is the real issue. We will reveal how much we love you to a greater degree than you've ever had before. And we get that by jumping ahead and cheating a little bit in our Bible study right now by looking ahead to the end of the verse where it says, 
I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And the emphasis was on that manifest because in verse 22, Judas asked, how will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And it's that manifestation of God's love that we want to end this with. But this will, well, it could take a long time. The, man, the word manifest. What is the noun manifest? When you have a ship or a train or a plane, it has a manifest. It's all the contents you can't see. They're exposed. You get a list and it says this is exactly what we have on board. We have three Volvos. We have 10,000 barrels of oil. And it just goes down through the manifest. That's the noun. Now the Bible uses the word manifest over and over again to take something that is hidden and to expose it and to reveal it to people. Right. Now the average Christian doesn't have a clue about verses like this. All they know is John 3.16. They've made up some little idea that if they invite Jesus into their heart, they're saved, they're going to heaven, they don't have to worry about anything else, they can live any way they want, they can watch anything they want to on television, none of it matters because they're going to heaven anyway, because on such and such a date I invited Jesus into my heart, none of which is even taught in the Bible, but they're content that they're on their way to heaven. There's no inviting Jesus into your heart in the Bible to get saved, but they're content with that. So they don't, they don't even appreciate verses like this. But those of you that love the Lord Jesus Christ, to think of God the Father and Jesus coming to you, and he's, he's, he's explaining this to men that he had walked with, eaten with, slept with, preached with, enjoyed life with, enjoyed the Sea of Galilee with, had been in storms together, had walked together, all these different things they had done, He's saying, I have to go away, but I will come to you. I will not leave you comfortless. Remember that in verse 18? I will come to you. How would he come to them? He would come to them in the person of the Holy Spirit, which is God himself, in them. And what would he do in them? He would manifest the fact that God the Father loves them. So while you're out there preaching, and they pick up stones and stone you, and when Herod cuts James's head off, if you'll keep my commandments, I will know that you love me, and my Father will be with you, and I will be with you. We will not leave you comfortless. Right. We will manifest our love to you, and you will be able to take those stones and rocks, breaking your bones and thudding off your body, because you know that we love you and you're going to go straight in the presence of God. And so great was this love for them when they kept his commandments that the holy man, the holy deacon, Stephen, had heaven opened to see Jesus standing at the right hand of God Amen. and knew that he could say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Right. Death wasn't a problem for him at all. Do you know what his other words were when he was dying? Oh, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Stoning me is no big deal. In fact, get it over with, guys. Would someone get a big one and hit me in the head? Right. It didn't bother him to die right. because the Lord was with him. And that's what, that's what Jesus is promising his apostles. If you'll love me, keep my commandments. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. That word manifest. Look at Romans 5. I refer to this verse all the time, and I know I've taken you there before, but I want you to see it. Romans chapter 5 of exactly what we're talking about, a manifestation of love. A manifestation of something is to expose it, 
reveal it. Take that that was hidden and show it. Put it right in front of you to manifest something. It's how I'm supposed to preach, to make manifest the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make it as plain as I possibly can. That's what preaching is supposed to do. It's not supposed to hide it, cloud it, or obscure it. Romans chapter 5. Therefore being just, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, there is no more left for us to concern ourselves with because all is settled and our names are written in heaven and we can die and do whatever we want to, watch television and do anything else we want. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a whole lot more than peace. I don't just want peace with God. I want to know that God's my Father and He's adopted me. That's the highest level of salvation taught in the New Testament. By whom also... Jesus Christ, not only has Jesus Christ justified us and made peace with God for us, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, that is the Christian life today, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's great joy in us because we have hope that we're going to see the glory of God and be in the presence of God. And not only so, we have other blessings by being Christians, but we glory in tribulations also. We're glad when bad things happen in our lives knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Patience is cheerfully enduring negative events. The only way you can learn to cheerfully endure negative events is to have negative events happen. And not only so, but we glory in negative events also, knowing that negative events worketh cheerfully enduring negative events. And cheerfully enduring negative events, otherwise known as patience right here, works experience. So we become experienced Christians knowing that God doesn't forsake us and experience hope because we always know that God's going to come through and deliver us from whatever bad thing is happening. And hope maketh not ashamed. We are never ashamed putting our hope, trust, and faith in God because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. This is one of the chief cross-references for John 14, 21, and 23. Right here, Romans 5, verse 5. It starts with our justification in verse 1, but then it progresses that there are a whole lot more benefits than just having our sins blotted out by Jesus' death on the cross. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand of God's fellowship and friendship with us in life. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because Jesus has secured heaven for us. And then we have verses 3 and 4 that describe how we learn cheerfully enduring negative events. We'll never be ashamed. God will never forsake us. And then verse 5 is so wonderful. We're never going to be ashamed because God sheds abroad his love in our heart. That means there is a bright spotlight that comes into your heart and shines into every nook and cranny of it. And there is a loudspeaker shouting, I love you. And it's God the Father. By the Holy Ghost. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And you know, tribulations make you appreciate that. And the apostles had tribulations, and they appreciated it. The Apostle Paul, the last words he wrote in the Bible are 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, When I had to appear before Nero Caesar, no man stood with me. All men forsook me. I pray that it won't be laid to their charge. That's how serious it was for those fellow believers of the Apostle Paul to desert him when he went on trial before 
Caesar, who had the power of life and death over Paul. But what did Paul say after that? But the Lord stood with me and delivered me out of the mouth of the lion, and he shall deliver me into his heavenly kingdom. Because that's what's important. Oh, brethren, look at Romans 5, 5. Do you like that verse? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, does this happen for all Christians equally? Absolutely not. This is dependent on you not grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. If you grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, is that it, that 100,000 candle power spotlight that is in your heart, how many candle power is now shining? Well, it's 90, then it's 80, then it's 9,000, then it's 900. Then you can't even see it. I don't even know if I'm saved. If the Lord were to come, I don't even know if I'm saved. Probably go to hell. I know he's not happy with me. I don't have any joy in my life. Where's the joy of my salvation? Well, it's your fault. You kept spraying water on that thing. You called for the fire department to put a hose on the 100,000 candle power spotlight. You shorted the whole thing out by quenching the Spirit of God. Then you grieve the Spirit of God by offending Him by your sinful lifestyle, your sinful music, your sinful movies, your sinful friends, your sinful choice of words, your messed up marriage. You keep offending the Holy Spirit. Well, I just don't love being a Christian. I don't get as excited as some of the other people in our church. That's your fault. You've got infinite power in you. The power that worketh in us. Ephesians 3.21 Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above what you ask or think. That is not praying for a Chevy and getting an Oldsmobile. I have heard that verse abused so many times. There are little Christians that want to stand up and give a testimony. I just want to thank God for doing exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think. I prayed for this $10 an hour job and I got $10.75. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Why don't you write me and I'll send you an extra buck and you can make 11 Unbelievable. They'll do that. They'll take that. You know what that verse is all about? It's the love of Christ being shed abroad in your hearts. Right. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. We get so messed up, we don't look at context, and we are so wrapped up with physical fulfillment of prayer requests because we pray too much for physical things. I need a car. I need a house. I need a bigger house. I need a job. I need a better job. I want to pray to your wife. Oh, I've already got one. I mean, um, Lord, let's go on to another subject. Um, I want this. I want that. I want this. Just on and on. But you know what the real thing is? The real blessing is? Even to his apostles, men. You've got my sayings because I've given you three and a half years of them. And in verse 26, he's going to say the Holy Spirit's going to bring back all my sayings to your remembrance. You know all my sayings. If you'll keep them, my Father and I will come and make our abode with you and we will love you. And we will manifest ourselves to you in a way that you haven't known before. You will know that we are with you, that you are in me and I am in you. You're going to know it like you have never known it before. And we can have that because Ephesians over and over and over says that the Holy Spirit can do that for us, second generation Christians. Look at that verse. I'm still looking at Romans 5.5. 5. I just don't, don't forget that verse. You're never going to be ashamed if you keep God's commandments and live the Christian life like you should. And he's, he doesn't expect perfection. He knows that you're not perfect. Like as a father pitieth his children, the Lord pities them that fear him. Look at who made the hall of faith. How many times do I need to say this to comfort some of you? Do you know who Jesus loves the most? 
Losers. Do you know who loves Jesus the most? Losers. There's Jesus sitting at dinner in Simon the Pharisee's house. Simon, can I ask you a question? Who do you think loves the most? The man that's forgiven a little or the man that's forgiven a lot? Well, that's like asking where are the Paris peace talks held? You know, Simon the Pharisee, half of you are too young to even know that there were Paris peace talks. Simon the Pharisee knew the answer. And we should know the answer. Jesus loves losers. And losers love him the most. Because they've been forgiven the most. David was God's favorite. Did David always pant like a heart after water brooks? No. Did David pant after some other things at times? Yes. Did God forgive him? Yes. Instantaneously. Did God chasten him? Sure. Did God still consider him his favorite? Yes. Why is the example in the Bible? For you to have comfort. Yes. Why is Mary Magdalene in the Bible? Why is Peter's failures in the Bible? Why are those failures in the Bible? Why is Noah getting drunk when he got off the ark in the Bible? Why is it all in the Bible? Why is Samson's messed up, dysfunctional, romance, romantic life in the Bible? So that you could know when you read, read Hebrews chapter 11 that he was in the hall of faith, that you could say, I think I can do as much good as Samson did. Because <laughs> it wasn't much. Honestly, but when David repented of his sins, what did he do? He panted after God. He loved the worship of God. One thing about his desire to the Lord. Was that true all the time? No, not all the time. Most of the time? Absolutely most of the time. One thing about his desire to the Lord, that will I seek after, and God had mercy upon him. And God had so much mercy on David, and, and David knew that God looked at those good things in his life, forgave him the ones he confessed, so that David could say, the Lord has rewarded me according to... So when I give you the words, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, you nor I are going to keep them perfectly. But is that the ambition of your life? Is that what you're trying to do? And when you fail, do you ask God to forgive you in the ones that you fail in? He he is faithful and just to forgive you from all those. He forgives faster, fuller, than you can ever forgive or ever have forgiven anyone else because his ways and his thoughts are higher than your ways and thoughts as heaven is higher above the earth. And you need to learn to trust him. You have never had anyone forgive you and you have never forgiven anyone else even close to the way God forgives. So when you're looking at the verse, don't let it intimidate you. Let it excite you. That verse should excite you. Verse 23 should excite you. I have his sayings. We're going to get some more sayings in the second service. We're going to get sayings about sayings. Do you know what I mean? We're going to get sayings about how you talk to your spouse. So it's one of Jesus' sayings. So we're going to learn about marital speech. I'm working on it. It's exciting every day to think, don't say that. You can say something better than that. Come on, get creative. Come on, leave your office and go in the kitchen. You know what she's doing right now? Interrupt her. Say something nice. I mean, why? Why? 
Because he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I know where I got her from. I got her from the Lord. And if I, and if I love her and keep his commandment, if I love him by keeping his commandments, I please him. I please her. She pleases me. It just keeps getting better. And then Jesus and God the Father come to me. They come to me and they tell me, you're ours and we love you. And we want you to just keep reading the word of God. Let us show you a few more things that are there. And it, and it gets so exciting and satisfying. There is nothing in life, and I have tried a lot in life, that can even come close to the pleasure of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in you, revealing and manifesting that they love you, that you are their special one, because that's all that matters. I'm not thinking about you at that moment. I'm sorry. It's just the Lord and me. And that they want to show me more special things out of his word. And we can see that you're making it. Does God ever talk to you any way like this? You know how he does it? He makes manifest his love in my heart. It's not an audible voice. I wouldn't want to hear an audible voice. If I heard an audible voice, I'd say I'm hearing things. But when it's inside and it's moving me spiritually, and it's not just fuzzy warm feelings, it's you're doing what is right, keep doing what is right. And we love you. And you're forgiven. And open another chapter and see what we can show you. So Hebrews 4, 12 through 16 pops up. You know how I've used Hebrews 4, 12 6 through 16, haven't you? It's the word of God quick and powerfully standing over you, a terrifying figure with a sword, a two-edged sword drawn ready to cut your head off. <laughs> and you heard last Sunday that is not the right application of those verses. Because it's if you look at the verses, it's about him being a priest, not a judge. And so on and so forth it goes as he, as he communicates with, that's what he says he's going to do. The final issue is, was that only apostolic or does this apply to Christians following the apostles? After the apostles. We get to the book of Ephesians and we know that it applies to all of us second generation Christians because Paul in the epistle of the Ephesians, two times each chapter, there's six chapters, times two is 12, 12 references to the Holy Spirit and additional ministries of the Holy Spirit beyond regenerating us. Amen. Beyond regenerating us. That the power of the Spirit with our inner man can so overwhelm us with the full, with the full dimensions, it's four, full dimensions of Christ's love till we are filled with all the fullness of God. Now that is pretty full and pretty exciting. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think. That's the context. It's this context. It's God talking to me and having a, fe- a friendly, loving relationship of fellowship with me that, I, that my joy may be full if we keep his commandments. Can't keep them perfectly. His commandments make your life better. His commandments bring him honor and glory, and he'll reward you for keeping his commandments to make your life better. But we all know that we have a selfish, sinful rebellion in us against certain commandments because we have our pet sins. Forsake your pet sins. Confess to God your pet sins. Do your reasonable best and trust his mercy for the rest and enjoy the Christian life by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.